What is going on? Welcome to The Land Podcast. This week, we have a recurring guest, Sean Asada. He breaks down an interesting Iowa Buck story. We also pay tribute to Charlie Munger, one of the best investors of our time. And we try to figure out how to apply some of his principles for investing into buying land. So there's some interesting snippets. There's some news about interest rates and just a general market update and some things that will keep you from buying land or some failures that you want to avoid towards the end of this conversation. So I hope you guys really enjoy. If you're brand new or it's been a while since you've tuned into the Land Podcast, the goal here is very simple, is to help 100 people buy their first farm. There's three ways to be involved on that list. Number one, if you're in the state of Illinois looking to buy a piece of ground, reach out to me. I'm more than happy to help. Number two, if you're looking for a agent to help represent you. I'm happy to make an introduction and you can make your own decision if it is a good fit for you and what you're trying to do. And number three, if you simply just learned something here on the podcast and it helps you move forward with confidence to buy your first piece of ground, I want to add you to the list. Hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Here we go. Sean, welcome back to the Land Podcast. How's it going? Hey, wonderful. And yourself? I'm doing great. I was excited for this. We have a lot of different things to talk about. And before we get into it, just give a quick introduction to who you are in case people didn't catch the last episode, and then we'll dive right into it. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm glad to be back for one. My name is Sean Asada. I am a real estate broker in the state of Iowa and in Urbandale in particular. I sell houses and land. I sell more land than houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, it's always fun because there's a, like we talked about on the last podcast, like there's people, I'm a land agent, that's all I am. And then, you know, a lot of those transactions are somewhat similar. And I think if you can do one, you could probably do the other. What what do you think is more challenging between the two in terms of navigating the market as an agent? Land. Land is, I'm not trying to convince people if they're looking at getting into real estate, I don't want to set them down a path of this is what you should do, or this is what you should do. But, and I'm not also not placing myself on a pedestal, but if you can sell land, you can sell houses. If you can sell houses, has a very little to do with selling land. Mm-hmm. A lot of land you're dealing with investors and not necessarily just investors, but investment minded people. Mm-hmm. And that is a completely different subset than in houses. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoy selling houses. I do. I really enjoy it. I find it more difficult to sell land. Interesting. Yeah, I, there's definitely two different types of buyers. And I think a lot of people when they're buying a house, it's because they like the neighborhood or they like the school district, or they just like how the house looks. And land is typically to your point, someone that it's still a huge, huge purchase and probably one of their biggest purchases, but they're, they definitely have a different thinking cap on than buying a house, primary residence. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. <clears throat> so we, uh, we've talked here on and off throughout the fall and you whacked a big old Iowa frame deer. I want to hear about that. Yeah, you know what? I'm looking forward to hearing about your deer more than I'm excited about telling about mine. But so the scoop was it was not on a property that I own. I still have some permission farms and this was on a permission piece, a friend of mine, and he let me he let me hunt it. He actually ran a couple trail cameras on there. He hunts, but he has quite a bit of hunting land and he was just like, hey, I got this piece. If you want to hunt it, go for it. And so I walked the piece and it wasn't very big, but I walked the piece and it's timber and CRP, but it was really hard. There's no food plots. Mm -hmm. And so there's really no way for me to funnel the deer. So I walked the property for probably an hour and a half and I was sweating like crazy. It was in uh, mid to late October when I walked it. And finally I could not find a spot for a stand. So I just pulled open an aerial 
And I'm like, okay, where's the best spot without walking it? Where's the best spot? And I found the best spot according to an aerial. So I went to that spot. What made you think it was the best spot? A draw, a timbered draw. And I knew I was going to hunt it during the rut. And my favorite, most successful areas to hunt are timbered draws between November 7th and November 14th in Iowa. And that that's my favorite rut way to hunt. You can hunt food plots. You can absolutely do it. But if I'm going to sit all day, it's going to be in a timbered pinch. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them in Iowa happen to be in draws and the wind swirls. So you have to be at least have that in your mind that the wind could be swirling because a lot of times it does. So I just found this timbered pinch and I went there and I just found the best tree I could for a stand. And my gosh, was a disaster trying to get a stand in that. And I eventually did it, you know, with sticks and a nice hang on aluminum stand, it should take you 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. At most, it should take you 15 minutes. I bet it took me at least an hour and a half. <laughs> I had to cut down so many branches and cut down some sucker trees coming off the side. And there were some deadfalls leaning against the tree. And it was a mess. And finally, I got the stand hung and to the deer hunt. So he had some pictures of a deer. And do you notice, at least in my eyes, do you ever notice that when you see a deer in person, it's way bigger than on trail camera? Especially with cell cameras, yes. Um, so I, I've dove into this a bunch because there's been times where I have pictures of a deer and I'm like, oh yeah, he looks he looks okay. And then you hear what he got shot and what he scored. And you're like, really? No way. And uh, so yeah, but I would say the Lift Two video version bigger, in my opinion. Or or so with cell cameras, I usually add five to ten inches as a guess. You know, I usually subtract about five inches. So yeah, to your point, yes, absolutely. Oh, okay, great. I'm glad you say that because the, whenever I look through trail cam photos, if I, on, especially cell cam photos, if I can find the picture where the deer looks the absolute biggest out of all the pictures, that tends to be how big the deer actually is. Agreed. So he had a few pictures of a deer and it looked like a mainframe eight with a split brow. It ended up being, um, all having another kicker. So it had 10 scoreable points. But he sent a picture of it. And he's like, dude, this deer is really old. This should be the deer you go after. So I sat the property and I did, I saw, I saw several deer, including a shooter that in my eyes, a shooter, but it was not that deer. And the, the shooter that I did see wasn't close enough anyway. So then I sat it again on November 7th. And that morning I had about 145 inch nine come underneath me and, you know, going away, a deer always looks bigger. Oh yeah. Right. So I I have my phone out and I'm videoing the deer as it goes away and I'm looking through my phone. I'm looking down. I'm like, Oh my gosh, should I have passed this deer? And I send it to some friends and like, what are you doing? And then I looked at the video again as the deer was coming on toward me and I'm like, no, definitely not a shooter, Yeah, but it made for some good video and some good pictures. So that morning, November 7th, um, of all, and not bragging, I just, I like to hunt. You like to hunt. Mm-hmm. Out of all the deer on my wall, including skull mounts and shoulder mounts, I've shot four deer November 7th, including, yep. including this one. So, mm-hmm. but don't get me wrong. I've had some November 7th where I see like one deer and I sit all day. Yep. So, um, I'd seen five or six bucks that morning and off in the distance on this hillside of CRP, I see a nice big frame deer. I pull binoculars and I look at him like, oh my gosh, that's the deer. But he's on a hillside and I'm down in a draw. 
-hmm. and he's about 80 to 100 he's probably 100 yards away so if i grunt at him he's gonna look right at me yeah because you're down it's like stadium seating for the deer exactly yeah and i could i'm looking eye level with him at 100 yards away and deer as you know when you grunt at them they it's for some reason they home in on it like that yep and so i waited for him to go around and he had to curve around the way he was going he was going to get behind a bunch of brush so but he was working his way closer so he got behind this brush that brush was about 80 yards away he got behind the um, brush i pulled up my grunt call i had it and i grunted really loud one time and he snaps his head my way because I'm looking the binocs and he snaps his head my way and he starts working his way my way. And I'm like, oh my gosh, here he comes. It's going to happen. And so he gets in front of me. He's 30, 31 yards and he's not stopping. So I have to stop him. And I don't, I absolutely, I stop every deer I shoot. If, mm -hmm. if I have to, I'll stop every deer. I'd never shoot him walking myself, never shoot him walking. So I stop him, he's 30, 31 yards, and I have, my bow is very quick. I shoot very light arrows, and that you sh can't really get away with shooting light arrows, anything bigger than a whitetail. But I shoot light arrows, and I have one pin from zero to 30 yards. Mm -hmm. And so I aim dead on where I think I should aim, and I think he's in a duck a little bit, because I stopped him. He's on alert, and he, neither here nor there, he didn't duck or I shot low, one of the two. Either way, I ended up hitting him low, blood immediately everywhere, gushing everywhere. He runs underneath me and I'm like, and I've I've done it a handful of times where I'll pull out my phone, I'll watch the deer tip over right on my phone because I don't video, uh -huh. but I'm gonna watch this deer tip over right on my phone. So I get my phone out quick, I open it up, go to video and the blood is going everywhere. I'm like, I'm gonna get this on video, this is great. This is like third time I've been able to do this deer doesn't deer doesn't tip over oh man I'm like oh my gosh so then let me turn the volume down on my uh, laptop i just heard an email come through um so it walks off and i'm still thinking i'm gonna get this thing to tip over i don't put another arrow in it like a complete <laughs> idiot so dumb i don't put another arrow in it because i'm gonna watch it tip over by this time it's out at like 50 yards which i could shoot 50 yards mm -hmm. especially at a, a wound put another arrow in a wounded deer absolutely you should do mm -hmm. that so blood's still gushing out of it doesn't tip over walks off and i'm like oh no so i call the owner i'm like yeah man i drilled him he's definitely gonna die he's gonna go fall over he goes into some brush don't see him tip over and we go in there two hours later, kick him up. No. Yes. And I'm like, oh no. So it's it's midday and it's still it's gonna be cool that day. It's gonna be cold that night. Mm -hmm. And so we go back up to where our trucks are and we just decide, you know what, better come back tomorrow. And so went back the next morning and found that the deer had went a total of 560 yards gushing blood maybe there was maybe three spots where it was just you had to really work to find blood mm -hmm. but then you would just you know work semi-circles ahead find blood again and it's just a path that you could just walk you wouldn't even have to go slow mm -hmm. and, and we did find him the next day fortunately fortunately he was not rotted I got yeah. to him because I my family loves eating deer mm -hmm. we have no more deer in our freezer at this point in the year and got to him and he smelled great meat smelled great ended mm -hmm. up getting him and uh it was a nice deer very happy with him g2s ended up one being um 
14 and two eights and the other g2 Whoa. was 14 and three eights those are ginormous twos <laughs> yeah and the deer was uh you know on camera he looked upper like an upper 50s nine uh-huh and he ended up going um in the low 170s so i was wow. very very yeah. happy with him that's really where'd you end up hitting him then or where <sighs> i don't even want to okay i'm gonna admit it <laughs> um crazy thing so when I stopped him, he turned toward me and I've shot several deer. 30 yards is a poke to shoot a deer aiming at like looking at you. Mm-hmm. He ends up, instead of being broadside to me, he ends up turning toward me mm-hmm. a bit. And I was going to drill him right in the armpit through the, through the vital. I was going to shoot in front of the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And that, that is where I hit him. I hit him good or bad. I hit him right where I was aiming and Dude, did you see how bashful I am? <laughs> it it did not penetrate his body cavity. It completely sliced open his armpit, and there must have been an artery through there where all that blood was coming from. Yeah. Blood was gushing on him so hard. It was hitting leaves, and there was bubbles in on the leaves. So yeah. I thought it got lung. Right, yeah. And um, that's the only deer I've ever killed in my life without penetrating the body cavity. But I do shoot a large broadhead, expandable broadhead, mm-hmm. and the gash was huge. So he did die from hemorrhaging, no yeah. no doubt about it. And um, I just basically, if you just get a knife and cut open a deer's armpit, that's that's how he died, hemorrhaging. Wow, that's crazy. That's, yeah. uh, that's lucky. Nuts. Yeah, very, well, very lucky. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the crazy thing with whitetails. And they, man, they just don't like to die. <laughs> they do not like to die there. I know everyone says that, and it, it's almost to the point where it's beating a dead horse but everyone's like white tails are so tough they don't want to die but that is crazy that you cut an artery the deer lives for that long it is um i don't know what i cut you know it clearly was not um one of the big ones that runs you know on top of the kidneys to the back Mm -hmm. leg i i've shot deer right here before you know just a few yards away and it's like you're getting a a jug of milk yes pouring blood out it was not like that but somehow there was something i hit there in that armpit that wasn't a major artery but it was an artery enough where uh where it died and consider myself very lucky had i been an inch off in a worse position the arrow mm-hmm. the deer probably would have hit bone and it would have popped out in a flesh wound yep. um, an inch the other way and it would have been a very quick kill it would have penetrated the body cavity and been because i thought i heart shot it there was blood everywhere when i hit the deer yeah do you wish you would have shot it again? If, if, if you live in that simulation again, are you grabbing your phone or are you just putting another one in him? Another one in him, 100%. The thing, I've gotten, because the bow I have is pretty old, mm-hmm. and I've killed at least 100 deer with that bow. And I don't know how many, majority of the time, I can see the deer tip over. Yeah. You know, you, and I used to do an, um, a deer population control hunt. So it got to be where if, if a deer came in, you just knew it was dead. You right. got to be so efficient at controlling the deer population that when yeah. a deer came in, you knew it was done. Yeah. And um, I have, haven't done it for a few years, but completely agree with you. In hindsight, one million percent should have put another arrow in it. Yeah. I think that's uh, the, the population control hunts. And a lot of the, the hunters that I know that are just very deadly with a bow in their hand, they shoot a lot of does. They just get a ton of reps. And I think there's maybe this <clears throat> ideology of hunters where uh, I'm only going to shoot a buck in reality. Okay. 
let's say most, let's just say most dedicated whitetail hunters, not every one of them always kills a buck every single year. So then you look at a 10 year span, you're only shooting seven deer over 10 years, for example, versus the guy that does take time to shoot those. And, and cause the moment of the truth, you can shoot at the target all you want, but there's all these different little nuances. Like for example, the deer end up quartering towards you more than what you anticipated and all these different things where I think reps are really, really important and something I could do better at. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the most I ever shot in one year was 14 or 15 deer. And I thought to myself during those few years that I did it, I did it for several years. I thought to myself, I felt sorry for the guys that only would shoot one deer a year. Cause I think to myself, how in the world can you do that? That would be so hard because when you shoot at a big mature deer, they're about four times the size of a yearling doe. Right. I mean, if not bigger. Yeah. So when you shoot these little does, the target's pretty small. Yeah. Yeah, but they 100%. do die easier. They do die easier for sure. Big yeah. mature deer are definitely more difficult, hardy. Yeah. They're more hardy animals. Yeah, but to your point, the vitals are definitely a lot bigger, and that's where sometimes when if you mess up a shot, like man, the vitals are like the size of a freaking beach volleyball, and <laughs> how did I miss a beach volleyball <laughs> or right. or a basketball even? Let's say, um, which is yeah, sometimes a little sobering. But um, <clears throat> let's hear about your deer. We have the full chronicling of this on the Exodus podcast. It's uh, it's kind of a, a crazy deal, but I was able to recover him, and I was really, really, really excited and, and so happy to to shoot him. And I love like, deer stories. I'll definitely listen. I love love deer stories. They're fun. You always learn a little nuance uh, nuance thing of it. But I think I clipped I clipped one lung, and uh, it just took him a long time to expire. But he was he was hurting, and so that was. I mean, I checked off what I wanted to to shoot in Iowa, and then on the way back, way home, you're really excited. But I, it was about 10 minutes after I was on the drive back east. I was like, man, this kind of sucks. It's going to be five or six years before I get to do this again. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, man, that was yeah. cool. But man. Or there, there is a way to make it one year. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm very well aware of that. And I'm just thinking, man, you know, I, I understand why all these guys move here. Because it's, it's uh, as a diehard whitetail guy, you really, those are the moments we all live for. Those are the moments we work so hard. And I, I look at... I look at a lot of times like what really motivates me and drives me to work as hard as for what I do. It's related to deer. I mean, I don't know if, if I didn't like deer and I might be a bum. I don't know. It's, It's crazy that a hobby for you and I, a hobby turned into how we pay our bills. Yeah. Yeah. How can I design my life to where I can hunt and enjoy what I want to do? And it is crazy. I mean, it is, uh, Oh, and you can have those hunts though. I mean, I don't know if you ever have them, but you can have those hunts where you're like, I cannot believe I took up this freaking hobby. What was oh, I thinking? Yeah. The, the inverse of that is what would I do? <laughs> if, if, what would I do with all this extra time and everything else? If I didn't spend, you know, four days dark to dark and basically get nothing done. Uh, yeah. but, <laughs> you know, the, the highs though are, are exactly inverse of the lows. Yes. Because you, I've realized and I'm 42, so I'm not this old wise man, but I've realized that the highs you have in, in deer hunting are directly inverse to the lows. Cause you can have some serious lows where you're like, what did I do? Happened to me this year, not yeah. putting my fault should yeah. have put another arrow in that deer. And I didn't. So it's, yeah. and that's one of those lows where you're just like beating yourself up. Yeah. I, I don't know of any other, I've thought of this. I don't know of any other hobby that does have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows to that level. I was talking to a friend about it. He golfs a little bit and he's like, golf's kind of like that. You get one good shot that wants it to come back. I was like, well, the highs aren't nearly as high as deer hunting or the lows aren't nearly as low. Like you make a bad shot, who cares from golfing. And I don't know of any other hobby that is such a roller coaster that I can be aware of. Yeah. And plus you have the life of an animal in your hands. Absolutely. I mean, and so there's that uh, responsibility 
that you have to think about. And the older I get, the more I realize the responsibility you have and, you know, doing to, to kill that animal as quickly as possible. Absolutely. And so there's that aspect like son of a gun and you feel horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And, but there, there's also the, when, when you do get the deer, not only do you get the, and the, this word I use um, with searching for a better word, mm-hmm. you, you get the trophy. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not a word I want to use, but you get to have that, mm-hmm. but you also get to have the meat and yeah. then, you know, people who doesn't like deer sticks, summer sausage, jerky. Um, if you've, if you've had a deer loin cooked, um, if you've had a deer loin cooked, well done, it sucks, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like deer. That's cause you had it well done. Yeah. But when you have a medium rare, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is very interesting. But, um, I think the last time you were on here was, it was in the summer and I always like to ask agents, what have you been seeing? What have you been seeing in your world of real estate? Uh, if you read some headlines, you think that the world was crashing down. But I think that uh, we were just talking before that we, you know, there was an article from from Realtor.com that mentioned the market's going to go down for the first time since 2011. This was the prediction, prediction. And it was like a point or a point and a half, which is, you know, it's almost like they said that just so they could write a negative keyword article to get more clicks and and get and scare people. But what what have, what have you been seeing? I haven't seen that. Um, it's a very similar. I think I might have said this before. <laughs> it's very similar to 2019. I read another. There's a so I'm part of DMAR, Des Moines Area Association of Realtors. There's a guy that does a lot of analytics for DMAR, and the last um, numbers that he put out were right. We're very close to 2019 for stuff selling at the pace that it's selling, mm-hmm. but edging toward 2016 if you were in the market at all or had any pulse on the market at all in 2016 or 2019 it was not a bad market Mm -hmm. and it's still not a bad market if one wants to just segment out the end of october to now all the way through mid-january they're gonna say it's slow and i'll say because it all you got it yeah you got it because it always is it's no big deal nothing to fret about, you know, just as much as people want to, um, educate themselves, you also have to know to listen to the right people. Mm -hmm. And this is one thing that I found out. You will always find a person that's going to say, it's going to crash. It's going to crash. It's going to crash. It's going to crash. And you know what? They will eventually be right. Yep. And then you know what they're going to say? Told you, told you it was going to happen. Told you it was going to happen. And it's fine. I mean, they they can think that, but a percent to a percent and a half water off a duck's back, not yeah. a big deal. Especially since Iowa, where I live, Iowa is a growing state. So will I see that happen? Will we see that happen in Iowa? Maybe, but that's much more likely to happen in states that have uh, that are impacted greater than Iowa, mm-hmm. or maybe states that went up forty. You know, that went up substantially more than the rest of the country. Too. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a more volatile market, like Arizona, some of those metro areas, Florida, mm-hmm. California. And that's where I think that's that's the importance of, to your point, talking to the right people. Talk to someone that's an expert in the area you're looking because they're going to have a better pulse than some uh, analytics that are nationwide because it's it can be a little deceiving. Yeah. All politics is local. Mm-hmm. Local, local, local. You got to like find your, your local expert or your local person of expertise. Mm-hmm. What have you been seeing from recreational land prices? Have they remained pretty stable or are you, are you still seeing things rise or are there less buyers than let's say uh, fall of last year, for example? Yeah. Yeah. There's less buyers. So is that going to have an impact on 
skyrocketing prices. Yeah, absolutely. That will have an impact on that. Prices have, I would say prices have leveled off. There is still strong market. There's still a strong demand for good property. Mm -hmm. So when, when it comes to recreational land, sometimes people, not, not all people, sometimes people want to buy a cattle farm with deer hunting and they want to claim that it's this excellent hunting farm. But I can, what I would challenge somebody that thinks it's excellent is I should go and show them what excellent is. It's almost like a park for deer. That is what excellent is. So if somebody wants to command 6,000 plus an acre for mm -hmm. something, then it is because of how good it really is. Just like you can have two cookie cutter houses. This one smells like cat pee. This one doesn't. <laughs> right. Okay. And this one is going to sell for a, possibly a premium, but this one sells like cat pee. And mm -hmm. I, oh, we have the same thing. It's just as good. We got, we have more square footage. Yeah, but it stinks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and we're going to get into this too, but, uh, Charlie Munger passed away. He was 99 years old. One of the best, uh, investors of, of what's to say the last hundred years uh, since he was 99 years old. And he, there was a, a quote that he said, a great, and we're going to twist this in a farm, a farm. Okay. So in yeah. his words, a great business at a fair price is superior, superior to a fair business at a great price. So let's change business to land. Do you think that a great piece of land at a fair price is superior to a fair piece of land at a great price? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wish you would have let me sleep on that for three days. <laughs> I have I my opinion. I have my opinion. Um, but You know, I, I would like to say that I'm not, you know what makes podcasts, you know what makes me love listening to podcasts? This is what makes me love when somebody has a hot take and they're convinced they're right. <laughs> right. You know what I don't have? I don't have a hot take and I'm not convinced I'm right. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm not the best person to, for, to, to create these hot takes. But I would say um, it all depends on what your goals are. Mm -hmm. That would be kind of my general answer. I think that if you're at the point in your life where you've ran a successful business and you don't have a ton of time to take something from fair to great, then probably a great farm at a fair price is, is the right call. If you're someone that's maybe younger and has more time, then a fair piece of land at a great price could be good. But however, there's some, some variables that might make a fair farm always fair, no matter what. And you'll yeah. never get the great price when you go to sell it or, or you'll never have the great experience that you were hoping for because it's a fair piece of ground, you know, whatever, whatever those nuances are for the parcels. So I think that to your point, it does, it certainly depends. It does. You know what, what I, when I had talked to sellers, um, I talked to quite a few sellers. I always think of when they're looking to sell, what is the highest and best use of the property and what is the most likely buyer? And sometimes you have those farms that are just, you can just tell by looking at them, how they're set up. It's, it is, or going to be an incredible deer farm, or you can look at other farms that no matter what they do to them, it's going to have some deer hunting, but it will never be an incredible deer farm. So what might keep the value up on that property? It's probably going to have to be income. Mm -hmm. So I can think of, um, I can think of a piece that recently sold in Decatur County high, high income farm. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it was between two high use roads, two paved roads. And so that farm is always going to have deer hunting on it, but it's going to be an excellent deer farm. No matter what you do, it'll never be an excellent deer farm. Yeah. But what's highest and best use income. Yeah. And so who did it sell to someone that wanted high income land? Perfect. Yeah. 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 
I think I might know what that farm is. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know what? I think you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great, great example. So uh, shifting back, and we'll get back to Charlie Munger, but there's uh, speaking of articles and everything else. Uh, so there, Bill Ackman, he's a billionaire trader, and he thinks that the Fed will cut rates sooner than the market thinks. He says, billionaire investor Bill Ackman is betting the Federal Reserve will begin cutting interest rates sooner than markets are predicting. Um, they said that it could happen as soon as the first quarter. Traders are fully pricing in a rate cut in June with a chance of cut happening in May, priced at about 80% according to Swap's market. And so the the consensus of this is, <clears throat> I think there's a real risk of a hard landing if the Fed doesn't start cutting rates pretty soon. So if they do end up cutting rates sooner than what the market is predicting, what do you think that's going to do for the real estate market in general? Do you think there's going to be influx of, because here's what I've noticed, the and this goes to farms and houses, the family that has the third kid on the way and their house is too small. But when it was really hot, they, they sold it, upgraded houses and their payment was very similar because let's say they're at 5% and then they went down to three. I don't think we're going to see that level of upgrade, but wh- what do you what do you think? Um, I do think the Fed is going to cr- <laughs> cut rates. I don't know if it's going to be, um, I think it'll be second or third quarter next year. I don't know if you know who Brian Buffini is. He owns a, uh, he's a, he owns a coaching business, you know, personal growth business, mm-hmm. coaching business, but he has a excellent, excellent podcast. It's a, it's very highly real estate related, but it's a great podcast regardless, but he made, um, he made his millions in real estate and he always has his bold predictions of the following year. Mm-hmm. So this week, he always does it the first week in December, but the talks from him and the last two, you know, how I talked about hot takes, I love listening to him talk. But the last two years, he's been pretty spot on what the really? following year is going to bring. Mm. And so, and in a crazy market like we've seen, to be right, it's pretty hard to do about yeah. the future. So I'm really looking forward to this one that's coming out first week in December sometime. But what he thinks is that rates will be cut um, the second quarter of next year and that housing again will take off. Because housing right now, it's, it's not dead. It's just, mm-hmm. it's plateaued. Mm-hmm. And so what I don't want to see, I, I do think the real estate market will like begin an additional uptick next year. I do believe that. But um, what I don't want to see is it skyrocket again. Because be what that, it would be unhealthy. And what, what it really does is a lot of people want to talk about how much um, their, their, uh, personal financial statement has increased, you know, their net worth. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's great. Really what it does, it's holding down the value. It's weakening the value of your dollar. Mm -hmm. So your net worth can go up, but if your dollar is worth less, your net worth didn't really make a difference in your life. Yeah. So I don't want to see that happen. Um, But I do, we'll see exactly what it comes out and says, Brian next week, but from indicators, what he's dropped hints of in the past, few months about in his podcast, uh, he believes rates will drop second or third quarter next year. And I, I agree with them. Mm-hmm. What, so do you, would, what do you think? I think, man, I'm not an economist and I'd be, I'd be a bad one to even pretend I was, but I think that consensus is correct that I think, well, here's the thing, even for, you know, people upgrading houses, for example, when rates were really low, people were upgrading farms as well. And so now that we see some of those same buyers that maybe have been on the sidelines when they were looking at, maybe I can buy a 120, or maybe I can buy an 80. Now they're like, I can buy a 20 or I can buy a 40 and my payment's the same. And so I think that may stimulate some of the more affordable farms, more more movement on those. And uh, 
it, it's it's hard to say. And I think with no, the, I want you a hot take. Hot I want take. You, uh, your hot take. <laughs> we're like, no, Sean, you're a freaking idiot. It's <laughs> exactly what's gonna happen. Um, I would say if if I was a buyer for land right now, I would. I would not be hesitant to buy something with the thoughts of either A, refinancing it eventually in a year or two, or, or B, before the rates come and competition floods back in. Because right now as a buyer, I think you do have a little bit of an upper hand because there's not mobile offer scenarios, not as many. And so I think as a, a potential buyer, it's a great, great time. And I think as a seller, I would start putting together a plan of what do I really want in the next year or two? Am I really ready to move? Am I really ready to sell this farm and upgrade? I think that would be some of the conversations I'd really be having. But as a, as a betting man, I, I think rates are going to go down and I think people are going to get a little bit more excited because so I think there's, I. A lot of people, there's a lot of people that feel like they're, they're trapped in their house at whatever rate they're in. And if you make that a little more justifiable to go from, instead of going three to eight, you know, three to five and a half, three to six, it's a little bit easier to swallow. It is, you know, I'll put my money where my mouth is. I'm, um, I'm buying something in January. I'm buying some, some more in, in January, and I'm locking in at seven point seven five percent. Uh huh. I don't care. Yeah. Not, not because I have a bunch of money. <laughs> Trust me. The down payment is gonna be rough. Yeah. And the monthly payment is going to be rough. Rates are gonna come down. I'll refinance it. What if? Okay. What if? Do you have a contingency plan if it doesn't? I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll sell it for, I'll sell it for what I have into it. Uh-huh. It's a, you know what? I, I think I said this last time I have lost honest to goodness. I've lost way more money, not buying real estate than I have made buying real estate. So if for some reason I was to lose 10 or $20,000 of my, on my personal financial statement, cause I got to mm-hmm. get rid of get rid of it it's okay. It's, mm-hmm. it's okay. Um, do I want to do that? Absolutely not. I do not want to do that. And I'm not minimalizing 10 or $20,000 at all. Cause mm-hmm. I can, I can remember just like yesterday when we bought our first piece of land and we put down like $15,000 and that was most of our savings account. So I can absolutely sympathize with that being all of one's money. Mm-hmm. And so for me to, I'm not minimalizing losing that amount of money. I just know that it, it's, it's a good choice and, um, worst case scenario, if rates don't come down, I can make the payment the, the way the rates are right now. I can still sure. pull off the payment. Mm-hmm. What made you want to buy that piece? I don't know. Cause I'm crazy. I don't know. Is it a piece it's, of land? Uh, it's a house actually. Okay. There's some, okay. there's some, there's a, park with behind it too but um what made me want to buy you know it's because i'm crazy first, first of all i'm crazy second of all it's been like two years since i bought any real estate so <laughs> i like I, I like this str- i like the stress it puts me under i uh-huh. do i i it's crazy the the stress and drive that it gives me to make myself work to make sure that i can i can pull it off for some reason, I like it. Okay, I think uh, there's a lot of people that are like that. I think uh, I think there's some people that are just wired, and that's how they're that's how they function best. Whether it's right, wrong, or different, um, that's just how some people are wired. So I mean, I respect that. Um, interesting, yeah. interesting. So 
back to back to Mr. Munger here. So this is uh, yeah. this is a, uh, a piece of a, a quote from him. He says, "It's so simple. You spend less than you earn, invest shrewdly, avoid toxic people, toxic activities, try to keep learning all of your life, and do a lot of deferred gratification. If you do all of those things, you are almost certain to succeed. If you don't, you're going to need a lot of luck. And if you don't want to need a lot of luck, you want to go into a game where you are very likely to win without having unusual luck." How can one take the values of that and put it into purchasing land? Oh my gosh. I love that quote. I love what you just read right there. We have, so we have two kids. One of them is 14 years old and she, in my opinion, she is at a very, um, formidable, a very vulnerable time in her life of choosing, making decisions that put you at certain crossroads to set yourself up for success in the future. And you are absolutely a product of your association. One million percent product of your association and the books you read. I can tell what somebody in five years is going to, what they're going to look like just by the people they hang out and the books they read. Mm-hmm. So um, what, what I take from that is hang out with people and talk to people that are upwardly mobile. There is, I came from a small town in Iowa, great town, nothing wrong with that town, have a ton of friends from that town. I can remember a lot of people that I grew up near that had very small mindsets and they were always, oh, um, you know, factory blue collar town. And thank goodness that they had that factory there. That's what kept the town going. But if you hang out with ho-hum people, you're going to be ho-hum. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I just, it's, that's no fun. That's mm-hmm. no fun living, living for Fridays. I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine living for Fridays. Mm-hmm. What about yourself? What do you think? No, I agree with that. And I think, I think, uh, tying it into someone buying their first piece of ground. I think that there's really, for example, your, your story, ten fifteen thousand $15,000, that was basically all you guys had. You put it all on, on buying a farm and you had to create margin in your life in order to get that started. And I think that maybe some guys are paralyzed and we, you know, that's kind of the point of this podcast. We have people from all walks of life. We've had teachers on here. We've had, we've had new dentists. I mean, every type of profession you can think of. And all of them have this common theme of they, they were very, very diligent at one point and saved up some money and were able to buy a piece of ground. And I think that they didn't count on luck. They didn't count on getting a, you know, twenty thousand dollars from a scratch off ticket. They made very diligent decisions in order to get started. And then inherently when you buy land, I think you end up talking to other landowners that put themselves in that same position. Or you talk to people that are further down and they're in chapter twenty when you're in chapter one. The guys in chapter twenty are typically very nice. Like, yeah, I made this mistake. Don't do that. Or yeah, that is a good idea. Do that. And I think that's that's really important for anyone that's just getting started to surround yourself around people that are where you want to be. Because they've already did it. They've already laid the map and put down a few foundations of, of the road for you. You yeah. still have to hop in your car and go. They're not going to drive for you, but you can at least follow the path that they created. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, when I, you know, you and I, as far as I know, you don't invest in conver- commercial land, right? Commercial property? No. Neither do I. Um, you, can, you can look at commercial property and people will say there's a lot of risk in buying real estate. Okay. I might agree with that if they're talking about very high dollar, high per acre or high per square foot mm-hmm. property. So what would be high per square foot commercial property, development property, lake um, front property where you're buying by the foot mm-hmm. of, of shoreline. That is much more um, 
vulnerable. That's much more, uh, you're prone to risk, I would say, more in those situations. But when it comes to land, uh, recreational land, rural Iowa, Illinois land, it's as least of risk as you are going to find in real estate. Mm -hmm. So for somebody to call that kind of land risky, I would disagree with them. And I could show them numbers over decades to back it up. So therefore, it's not an opinion. I can We can show it with facts and numbers that buying rural land in the Midwest is not risky. Mm -hmm. Well, here's uh, to add to that, a lot of really wealthy people and even in, in funds that have hundreds of millions of dollars, when things got uncertain in the market, where did they deploy that money? Yep. You got it. <laughs> land. Farmland. In, in the Midwest. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. And yeah, so I think that's a perfect illustration of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's just get to work, get to work, live below your means, save, save, save. And, and, uh, you can, if you save enough to start making money with that, what I've realized is if you can save enough money to get started, you can, it becomes easier to make money than it does to save money. So explain, now explain that. Yeah. D dive into that more. Okay. So, um, I'm going to say what I said in other words, and then I'll, I'll circle back on it. To me, it's easier to make money than it is to save money. Don't get me wrong. I, the vehicle that my daughter drives with her school permit is our old Toyota Avalon, 257,000 miles on it. So I am definitely about saving money and not being um, flivorous with money. So live below your means. But it's also once you get that nest egg, that that uh, that snowball to get you started, that becomes a way to now make money with all that hard work you took saving money. For instance, you and I like land. Okay, we know, we know, we know, we know. I know for a fact that even today, land prices being high. Hi, right? We're calling for it high today for yeah. now. And you've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. We will wish there will be a point in 10 years or less. We will wish we could buy land for what we could buy it for today. Mm -hmm. So if one can afford this snowball, this little egg of money to put down on their land, you can simply force appreciation with what's the highest and best use for that land. Let's say it's hunting. Okay. Make it better hunting. Make it more appealing for hunting. Let's say uh, highest and best use is crop ground, but it's some rough cattle ground that's got X, the CSR is good enough. The soil quality is good enough where it could be row cropped. Highest and best use for income on that property and return on your investment would be to turn that um, marginal crop ground, but too good of quality, in my opinion, to have it as pasture ground turn that into row crop. Now you're forcing appreciation where you've now taken your $40,000 down payment on property that was $180,000. And now within two years, you've made that property worth $225,000. And so what'd you, uh, that's $45,000 mm -hmm. and your interest that you have on the property is tax deductible. So whatever tax bracket you're at, let's just say your effective tax rate of 30%, you paid $10,000 of interest, really that interest only cost you $7,000 because you saved 3,000 from Uncle Sam because you wrote off that $10,000 of interest. 
So you have turned that $40,000 down payment for into another 45 of profit. So you turn it into $85,000 because mm-hmm. you use, I have no problem using the bank's money. I, you know what? I have to use the bank's money. I do. That's, mm-hmm. I don't have enough cash. I know investors that have millions and millions and millions and millions of liquid cash that are absolutely, one guy lives two miles, not even a mile and a half from me. And um, he invests in um, commercial development ground. He hasn't had a loan since he was in his 20s. Wow. You know what? He, he did better than me. Mm-hmm. I'll admit it. He'll, he'll always, probably always do better than me. I still have to use the bank's money and have no problem doing it. Mm-hmm. Are there any rules of thumb that you, that you have in the back of your mind when you're using the bank's money at, at, your, yeah. at this point in your life for yourself? I try to, I try to put 30% down. Don't have okay. to, you can get, there's some banks that'll do as little as 10% down. Um, you could only amortize it for a 10 year note if you put 10% down. And for some reason, I find it easier pill for me to swallow clearing my savings and, and making my monthly payments smaller than I do keeping more liquid and then making my monthly payment higher. Because I don't, when I put money down on real estate, I don't look at it as money going away. It's just, it's in a different spot. It's no, it's not liquid anymore. Mm-hmm. But if I really needed that money back, I could have it back in 60 days. Because mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I could just relist the property, go sell it, and I could have my cash back in 60 days. Well, if I am that vulnerable where I can only see 60 days at a time, man, I got way more problems than than just needing that down payment. Mm-hmm. So my rule of thumb is I try to put 30% down, not always. I try to put 30% down because that's going to get me my best interest rate. Because what I'm trying to do, I know I have good enough credit that I can I can find the best deals around as far as interest goes. I can get as good as anybody. Mm-hmm. And the way of doing it is by with good credit, putting 30% down. Um, so that's my rule of thumb. But a lot of a lot of buyers that I work with, they're only putting 20%, 25% down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then, you know, your interest rate is going to go up a quarter percent probably. Mm-hmm. What do you think? The first farm I bought, I put 30% down <clears throat> and I was like, man, maybe I should have put 15 down and bought a bigger farm. <laughs> That's what I thought when rates were, you know, four and a half percent. But <laughs> True, true. <laughs> I yeah, mean, so, kidding. but also uh, to hop in that emotion, man, I was, I was scared, scared to death. I was 26 years old. It was basically all the money I had in my name and I, and I, and I did it. And so it's easy to say, oh, I wish I would have bought more. I'm so smart. But at the time I, I did what I felt was right, which is probably the right thing to do. But um, <clears throat> even in hindsight, you, you wouldn't take back buying, clearing your account to buy that land. No, no. I mean, bought exactly. it, bought it uh, before things went really crazy. And you know, if if I wanted to sell it, um, you know, wouldn't get rich off rich off of it, but I would make a little bit of money. And so that was kind of the the goal. And that was some of those those emotions that I went through as a brand new landowner, brand new, you know, mid twenties. It's like there's got and and I learned this from real being an agent as well. It's like there's some guys who are really sharp and know a lot. And then you have the next guy call you from the, and he's like, Hey, I think about buying my first farm. What can you tell me? And I was like, well, you know, this is like, so it was part of it. It was just a journey to learn as much as possible so I could help my clients more. And also just understand, man, there's guys out here that have done really, really well. And just know more than it would take me 20 years to learn what they've learned. And so to flatten that learning curve. So would I've done anything different? Probably not. If, uh, am I glad that I 
you know, bought that farm when I could. I, yes. And I think that there's, this is the same consumer behavior that I'm sure you see as well. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is a farm that I think checks off enough boxes that I'm, I'm willing to buy it. But in the back of my mind, before I even sent off the offer, I'm like, but what if something better comes along? <laughs> and, oh, and, the re- yeah. and, the, and it really hasn't happened to where it's like, man, I, I really regret buying that because I really, really wish I could have bought, you know, ABC. That hasn't happened to me. Mm-hmm. How yeah, often do you I, have to talk to clients about that? Oh, I, it happens every now and then to me mm-hmm. where, where I'm like, gosh, if I had all my cash, where I had no land right now and I was just sitting on all my equity, would I go, would I go buy that farm? Yeah. I've, I've had chances like that, but they're going to come along. They're going to come and go. And you know what? I, I sell it for other people or I help another buyer. And if I like a property so much that I would buy it, you know how easy it is for me to sell it. Exactly. Super easy. Cause it's, it's genuine. I genuinely, genuinely, Jake, I genuinely believe with every fiber in my body buying recreational and rural real estate in the Midwest, in Iowa, where I live is a great idea. So if I talk to somebody about it, it, I don't have to embellish anything because I could, I totally believe in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would agree with that. So I think, and just talking about this, like I think some of the emotions that most people have before purchasing a piece of land is uncertainty and nervousness that are they buying the right farm or am I doing the right thing for my family or am I deploying my dollars with how I should? And and I kind of know your answer to this, but what are some things that they should ask their agent or ask themselves if they're making a sound decision in your mind? So this, um, it's really easy for me to answer. I'm going to make it so simple that it's almost like I'm not even answering your question. Figure out what you can pull off for a down payment. If, if one has $50,000 liquid and they are going to clear it down to, to, uh, let's say they're going to put $45,000 down. They're only gonna have $5,000 liquid for a rainy day fund. Am I saying they, they should do it? Not necessarily, but I did. (laughs) <laughs> right. a, couple time, a couple times yeah down to zero down near darn to zero literally zero a couple times so um number one can you pull off the down payment number two can you pull off the payment if you can do those two things then really all you need to look at when it comes to that land is if i have to sell it what is the next person's highest and best use can i make it that also remember what is the worst thing about this farm because that will come up in other people's minds and if you can remedy it remedy it if you can't then accept it mm-hmm. and make everything else everything else you can better so if somebody's debating you know doing the ping pong should i do it should i do it should i do it rarely there is sometimes but rarely is there times this is the times when i tell people no don't do it if it's not the right farm if I can look at it and be like, there's no, I would not buy that farm. In their shoes, would I buy that farm? I'll tell them no. Mm-hmm. no this, this is not the one. I've said it more times than I can remember. This isn't the one. So-and-so, this isn't the one. But it's it's like pheasant hunting. So do you have the money to put down? If you do, then figure out how much you can spend. Okay. Then when you find that right one, it's just like pheasant hunting. When that rooster pops up, you got to move on it now. It's not like, oh, oh, yeah, I think, all right, oh, yep, um, it's gone. Mm-hmm. You have to treat it like pheasant hunting. 
immediately go after it if that's the one. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think that's a, yeah, because some of those best farms, they don't stick around for a long time and the good deals are good. And and I think, what about, uh, I, I've seen clients have really good success with a farm that was priced too high and it sat there for 366 days, just for a random example. And what some buyers look at that, man, you know, what's wrong with this place? It's been listed for a long time. Maybe after, you know, 366 days, maybe it got reduced twice. Yeah. And what do you say to someone that, you know, Hey, I see this farm. It's been listed for a long time. Yeah. It has a couple of issues with it, but I mean, what do you think is what mm-hmm. they're, is what they're going to ask you? Cause I've seen where people do that and they end up getting a really good deal on it. Yeah, absolutely. There. And those human psychology, people want what other people want. People don't want what other people don't want. So as a seller, time is your enemy. So as a buyer, time can be, can be, you know how I said pheasant hunting, not trying to talk out of two sides of my mouth. I understand it might come out that way, but time can be on your side. If it is one of those stagnant properties that has been sat there and sat there and sat there, and then you can go after it and you can get it at a price that you can go and create some equity. Mm-hmm. So sometimes as a, I, I tend to not, I definitely work with a lot of buyers tend to work with maybe a few more sellers than buyers. But um, when, when it comes to, again, when it comes to a property, time can go against you as a seller. But if it, if it sits there for a long time, there's nothing wrong with just trying to figure out what is wrong with that property and figuring out if you can deal with that. Mm-hmm. Because I, I told you, I think I told you last time, um, I ended up buying one of those properties. It was, it was priced too high and it was logged. So one price too high. So they had that going against them and it was logged and immediately on the market after it was logged. So I knew why it wasn't selling. It looked awful. Mm -hmm. So you just have to figure out what, what can you do to deal with it? And sometimes um, the market determines price. I don't determine price. So many people I've seen online, um, people make comments, not necessarily toward me or you, but people make comments of those stinking real estate agents running up the price on everything. And I can understand why someone would say that. It's an ignorant comment, but it's not out of, it's not out of malice. It's just out of misinformation because real estate agents don't drive up the price. You know who really drives up the price? Buyers. It's not even sellers. It's actually buyers that run up the price on something because buyers are the ones coming with the money to purchase it. Mm -hmm. So if they want to blame anybody, blame buyers. (laughs) Don't blame us because it's true. It's true. The buyers run up the price. So if there is not a buyer willing to spend $200,000 on a property, that means that today, today, that property is not worth $200,000. So what is it worth today? Whatever a buyer is willing to pay and what a seller is willing to take. Mm-hmm. So um, again, there's, there's ways to create equity. And I'll say it again and again and again and again. There's no such thing as a perfect property, house or land. There's no such thing as a perfect one. Yeah. So you, you will never, if you're looking for the perfect property, you're never gonna buy. Sa- save your time and stop looking. Yeah. They don't exist. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a hard thing for people to, to really <clears throat> fully grasp, but you're exactly right. So what are some things that people could flat out fail when they're trying to purchase land? 
We talked about how to, how to be successful. What are some just surefire ways? I mean, obviously one of them is waiting for the quote unquote perfect property because they don't exist. But what are some ways that people could just flat out fail? Defeatist, defeatist attitude, um, living in the woes of prior failures, not thinking it's going to happen and understanding. Okay. You've seen how bucks act bucks during the rut. They act dumb. Okay. They, they act, they bucks are risk takers, Jake, no matter what, whether we want to agree with it or not, men are wired to be more risky. You can see it young men tend to, to, to die sooner. They tend to die in accidents. They tend to have dangerous jobs. They tend to do things that are just straight up physically against their best interests. Okay. So what I often find is I, I see that women, nothing wrong with it, tend to be more resistant to risk. That's okay. It's not their fault. It's, it's how they're wired. You can see women with kids tend to be nurturing, caring, tend to be, not always tend to be nurturing and caring more so than men because that's how they're wired. So what I'm getting at is it sounds like I'm blaming women here. I'm not blaming women at all. It's just women tend to be more averse to risk, more scared of risk. So often you'll find um, wives being resistant to buying a husband, buying a recreational property. Now, if they're in the woman's into hunting, that's great because she wants it too. But what I'm getting at is I'm not trying to um, poo-poo or talk poorly about women. What I'm trying to get at is they they can sometimes think that they the men the their their counterpart their well their partner not their counterpart their partner mm-hmm. is spending money on land, but they're not really spending money on land. They're just displacing some liquid in a different spot because it's an investment that you can enjoy. It's not mm-hmm. money spent. You know what money spent is? Money spent is rent. Money spent is lease. Money spent, I actually believe it or not, this sounds so rude and poor that I would say this. Money spent is vacations. That is money spent. That is money spent on something you can never get back. You know what money spent on? For, take this, for instance. Arrows for your bow and arrow. Believe it or not. That's not necessarily exactly money spent because you could go, now granted, you're not going to get full price, but you could go and sell those arrows. So you bought a hundred dollars worth of arrows, you go sell them for $60. So those, that hundred dollars you, you spent, you could actually get 60 of it back vacations. That is money spent. It is gone forever. Uh-huh. Land is not money spent. It's, it's put elsewhere. So what, some things that stop people from buying land is a partner that is very hesitant to dipping into that rainy day fund. But you know what? Vacations, they, for some reason, I like to take vacations. We don't take very, we haven't been on a vacation quite some, gosh, over a year probably. But you know what? It's it's crazy to me that people can blow. I'm trying to soften this blow by saying this. It's crazy to me that people can spend five to $10,000 a year on a vacation, but they can't buy, can't find money to buy land. And if that's what they want, I'm happy for them. Mm-hmm. I really am. Cause it's not what I want. It is what they want. And if that is what they want, fantastic. Cause you know what? 
money makes makes the world go round. It keeps uh, it keeps resorts in business. People work at those resorts, and that gives them money to put food on the table. Nothing wrong with that. But it, you just have to figure out what you really want. If you really want land, there is a way to do it. I like that. Now, what if what do you think someone should have a timeline for? Because I think uh, putting relating back to to renting versus owning, just for example. I mean, there's some rules of thumb where mathematically you you should probably rent if you only think you're going to be there for a year or two. Let's just use that as just a, a general general key here. Now, what about for buying a piece of recreational land? Is it do you think that people should buy it with the thought of this this indeed could be liquidity in 90 days if they decided they want to sell it and close on it? Or do you think that it's good to buy a farm with the intent that you could own this forever if you did want to? Or do you think it's okay to say this is a two-year plan? Or or is it too short to even say this is a one-year plan? I, I, have, I like three years. I like the idea of, could you keep this property for three years? Because if you could see yourself keeping it for three years, then I see zero risk. And the reason I say three years is because the worst, um, the worst economy you or I have ever seen was the crash of 2008. And that happened, you know, what was it? Mid 2008. And then by 2012, it was fine. It's three and a half years. It was fine again. So if we saw is something as bad as what we saw in 2008 in three years, you're, you're okay. Again, even Mm -hmm. in a absolutely disastrous scenario that happened in 2008 but there's so many regulations and so many different things that happened at that time that it couldn't happen now for better for good reason Mm -hmm. so that is what i like to see if somebody can have it can foresee themselves having it for three years or more then great or they need to be getting a really good deal on it Mm -hmm. but nothing wrong with paying market value Let's say market value is high in in their eyes. If they can see themselves keeping it for three years, they for some reason found a killer deal. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to keep this a year. Cool. You, looks like you got a great deal on that anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's price entry is obviously important to that, and uh, that's that's really good information. What's something that you've learned in your years of real estate that just really sticks with you? Maybe it's a it's, it's a key phrase, a key lesson, a key story that you keep coming back to in your mind or a scenario you see happen over and over and over again. You're like, well, I, you know, I've seen this happen before and, and do this to avoid that type situation. Second guessing, just do it. Just do it. I mean, I'm not saying just do it as in go jump off a cliff. Right. <laughs> just do it as in go to the casino and put it all on black. Mm-hmm. And it sounds the way I talk, it sounds like I'm a risk taker, but I'm not, I really, I am very risk averse. I don't, I'm too scared to gamble. I have a casino 20 minutes from my house. I think the only time, I think we were given some gift cards there by somebody that, I, I can't remember the last time I've gambled. So I, when I say just freaking do it, I'm not, don't use me for, use anybody for an agent. Mm-hmm. Use anybody you want, anybody you like, anybody you trust. If you like them and you trust them, great, use them. Perfect. Because I want people to like and trust me and same mm-hmm. thing as you, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I know it sounds so easy for me to say when I say just do it. But that is coming from somebody that, honest to goodness, is a very – I am risk averse. I'm a person that does not gamble. I'm a person that drives Toyotas because 
they last a long time and i i'm risk averse i don't want to take the risk of buying something expensive that's going to break down on me so are they the best in my eyes but that isn't i'm that's just my own perspective mm -hmm. right so i'm saying it over and over and over again if you have the money you can afford the payment then there is a way for you to do it and you mm -hmm. should mm -hmm. you will you will thank me. I can't. I don't know how many transactions I've done in the last handful of years. I mean, hundred and two hundred. I don't know. Just me. I'm. I'm just me. I don't have a buyer's agent. I don't have team. I mean, there's other agents in my office because I'm the broker owner, right? Mm -hmm. But um, hundred, not hundreds. I mean, a couple hundred transactions. I think. I think I've only seen that I can think of offhand one person lose money. Wow. It was like, it was like $20,000. Wow. He, he got rid of it too soon. He put a bunch of money into it and then he found something else he just had to have and ended up working out for him because mm -hmm. that, the, what he wanted was, was fantastic. It worked very well for him. Mm -hmm. So, um, so is it possible to lose money? Yeah, it's possible, but it's, it's pretty rare. Pretty hard. It's hard. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's, yeah, that's some really good pieces of information there. And I think, uh, I think one thing that comes to mind is sometimes it's okay to make a decision without having absolutely every single answer. Mm -hmm. Do you know that Jeff Bezos, I, you can Google it. Bezos says that if you can have, I think 70% of the information, that's enough information. Mm. You'll never get, you'll never get a hundred percent of the information. We could Google it right now. I'm pretty sure it's 70%. You're talking one of the wealthiest men in the world that made all that money in such a short, extremely short amount of time and for him to make decisions based on having 70% of the information, man, that's really all you need. Mm -hmm. You're never going to get all of it because if you want, if you want 90 plus percent of the information paralysis of analysis, and mm -hmm. again, can't find the perfect property. So it's not going to happen. Yeah. I just go, uh, whatever you're trying to figure out, you should make your decision when you have 70% of the information you need in order to come to a conclusion. A good that memory. Was that was who? Mr. Bezos. Yeah. And look how many billions of dollars he's created in a short amount of time. It's not yeah. like, it's not like he did this with Rockefeller money Yeah, where he made it over 140 years or something like that. Yeah. Not 19, whatever, 90 to, yeah, to today. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. And I think that's uh that's just another thing that I think is uh, hard for people to, to sometimes come to grips with that it is okay to make a decision without a hundred percent of it. And obviously Jeff Bezos thinks that too. So that's, yeah. a, that's, that's a good person to co-sign on that he, theory. What does he know anyway? <laughs> right. Yeah. A hundred percent. Is there anything else you can think of? Any other uh, parting words of wisdom? Um, I think there's some really good pieces of information here. And I think right now I've seen really in the last week, I've seen a lot more inventory just come to market here. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, tillable tracks too, with, with open tenancy for, for farm ground and everything else. But yeah, I think also <clears throat> there's a lot of guys that are in the mood to buy land right now because maybe their season didn't go like how they intended. Maybe the piece they hunted for free for 10 years is now going up for sale, or maybe they're sick of paying for a lease. So as a potential buyer, do you think right now is a, a good time to dive into some listings? I do. I think it's a great time. Um, there are people, I, so often I, people come to me around Christmas time uh, the holiday period and are like, Hey, do you think more is going to hit the market? Do you think more is going to hit the market? And the answer is yes. Every year there's, there's more that hits the market come shed season time is what, what I say. Usually, um, 
right after the Super Bowl is when real estate starts ticking up and you start seeing quite a bit of property. There's the holiday lag is over. It's starting to warm up outside. And I'm not, I'm not saying somebody should be a sports fan, but the NFL and sports is the biggest spectator sport in, in the country. So there's a lot of people that are just for one reason or another focused on um, just getting through the lull and watching some football. So is there going to be more listings coming up? Yes. You know what there's also at that point, there's more buyers. Mm -hmm. So they, they go up to, they go up together. Price goes up and listings are coming on, on the market. So it's, Always, you know, the best time to buy was yesterday, Jake. Second oh, best yeah. time to buy is today. Darn right. Yep. Which is always feels so cheesy, but it is it is true <laughs> in reality. I mean, yeah. no one can, no Not one can time gimmick. anything. Yeah, no one can time anything perfectly, and. Uh, I think just time and market. That's I think that's a Buffett thing, but maybe not Munger, but they're basically brothers in my eyes. So that, you know, yeah. the timing time in the market beats time in the market, and so I think that's a a key pillar there. Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, heck yeah. Um, Give, give everyone where they can find you in case they're looking uh, for a piece of ground or maybe they have some uh, some more uh, deep questions to, to grill you on and, and they can yeah. give you a call. Yeah, you can Google me, just Sean Asada, S-E-A-N, Asada, A-S-A-D as in dog, A. You're going to find several ways to get a hold of me or you can just, my email is Sean, S-E-A-N, at Iowa Land Man, all spelled out, iowalandman.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. Hey, thank you.